Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. We'll have a period of meditation. I'll offer some instructions, and then we will discuss the five precepts. So find a way to sit that's relaxed, upright. As you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed, bringing our full attention inward to the present time experience of the body sitting here. As you tune in to your physical sensations, Scan for tension in your body and where you find tension, try to release it. If it's possible, softening the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Shoulders and neck and chest, belly. Mindfulness is present-time awareness of whatever's happening, including the sounds, sensations, thoughts. It's often good to begin with a simple focus, mindfulness of the breath, letting everything else recede to the background, the sounds, the thoughts. Placing the sensations that the breath create in the foreground of your attention, focusing the attention, mindfulness of breathing, The Buddha's simple, straightforward instruction, breathing in, know that you're breathing in. What allows you to know the breath, to feel it, to receive it. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. 
And if it feels like you're controlling the breath by placing your attention on it, that's okay. But there is some encouragement to just let the body breathe by itself. That our task is to receive and to know the coming and going of the breath. As we allow the body to breathe its own rhythm, whether deep or shallow, long or short. Of course, the attention doesn't stay with the breath that gets drawn into thoughts about the future, the past, hope or fear, fantasy. So it does take some effort to connect and sustain awareness with the breath and to reconnect each time the attention wanders off the return. The introduction I was talking about renouncing, refraining from certain behaviors like killing or stealing. And part of meditation, especially this initial practice of mindfulness of the breath is also renunciation, refraining from indulging in the planning mind. We're not stopping the mind, but we're choosing take our attention away from the thoughts and to put our attention in the body.
if you're new to this kind of Buddhist meditation, you can just stay with the breath. It's a very important initial skill. Ignore the mind, come back to the breath over and over. Try to bring an attitude of friendliness. Be patient, be tolerant and kind as much as you can. As you return to the breath over and over. The Buddha's instructions are much more holistic, encouraging us to bring our whole being into the practice of present time awareness. We can't ignore our mind forever. The encouragement to turn towards, observe your thoughts. No, these are plans or memories hopes or fears, cravings or resentments, to pay attention to what your mind is doing. As well as the rest of the body, the sense doors of sound, smell, taste, seeing. And the emotional content that the body feels and the mind generates. And as we pay attention moment to moment to our own direct experience of thoughts and feelings, We become aware of many things, the impermanent nature of sensation and emotion and thought becomes clear. Whatever is arising is passing. Invitation to investigate, contemplate the impermanent nature of whatever you're paying attention to, whether it's your breath, some sadness in your heart, some worry in your mind, or that aching sensation in your knee, constantly changing, arising, sustaining, passing.
as we pay attention to the impermanent nature of reality in the body and the heart and the mind, it also becomes clear that some of the experiences that are arising and passing are perceived as pleasant. There's a friendly and likable nature to pleasant experiences and our human tendency to cling, to crave, to get attached to whatever feels good and pleasant. Our tendency to create suffering for ourselves, even around that which is pleasant. And the experiences, thoughts, emotions, sensations perceived as unpleasant, felt as painful, our tendency to meet with anger or fear, resistance, aversion, trying to get rid of, push away. turning what is painful into suffering. That extra level of anger and fear on top of what's already unpleasant. The Buddha's teachings, the practice of mindfulness, invite us to learn to meet our pleasant experiences with non-attached appreciation. Seeing clearly the arising and passing. And to meet our painful experiences with compassion, with mercy. First, by simply sitting still, learning to tolerate discomfort without running from it. Softening into the pain, around the pain, whether it's physical or emotional.
we meditate to see clearly what is arising and passing through the heart and mind, what the body is experiencing. And part of this clear seeing is learning to respond wisely, letting go of that which we're clinging to. Inclining the heart and mind towards mercy and compassion, towards our own pain and the pain of others. We'll probably turn the AC off, see what happens. It's often a little too cool or a little too warm in here. I think it's skillful when we finished a formal meditation uh, practice to take a moment to reflect on what just happened, to recollect all of the places your mind went, how you treated yourself, how many times you had to come back to the breath, to the body, to the present, hundred times, a thousand times. The monkey mind wandering in the future and past, and the discipline of, uh, and as I tried to frame it a little bit in the instructions, uh, part of what we're doing is renunciation in meditation. We're saying, I'm not going to indulge in doing what my mind wants to do right now. I'm going to refrain from this fantasy that my mind is wanting to spin or this worry or this fear or this uh, resentment or whatever your mind is doing and just being like, okay, I hear you. And 
I'm here. I'm not in that argument. I'm not rehashing that doubt or that fear or that worry. I don't need to indulge in that. I'm going to refrain. Not And, and it's subtle, right? Because we're not being asked to uh, stop the mind. And I think this is a big misconception of like, if you're good at meditation, you'll just turn that shit off. It's not really what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is saying like, no, like you're not going to necessarily, unless you get really concentrated, you're not going to necessarily be able to turn it off, but you can put it in its right place, which is it's just an impermanent thought arising and passing that you don't have to be that involved in. You don't have to be in the future in that fear. You don't have to be in the past in that resentment. You can be here knowing that's just a thought arising and passing through my mind and not so uh, reactive to it, not so in, involved in it. Renunciation is a central uh, part of the Buddha's teaching. If you're interested in really taking this path, um, to the full potential uh, and not just, you know, also sometimes I ask people like, well, what's your motivation? You know, so many people are meditating. Millions of people are meditating. It's so cool to meditate. It's all over Instagram. <laughs> but what's your intention? You know, and if your intention is like, I just want to meditate, get a little bit of relaxation, just a little, you know, I want to just be able to ignore my mind for a few minutes. Like, that's cool. Like, I don't want to completely diss it. Like, there's, there's a place for stress reduction. There's a place for, um, you know, sort of secular mindfulness tools in psychotherapy. Like, you know, there's a place for it, for sure. And, um, you know, it's not what we're doing here at Against the Stream. We're teaching, here's what the Buddha taught. Here's the path to liberation. Here's the path to awakening, not just a little less suffering, no suffering, not just a little less stress, freedom. And so the Buddha was quite clear. And of course, it's a rigorous, it's, it's, it's not a sort of like casual uh, thing to say, I'm going to try to end the suffering in my life. It's a serious commitment. And the Buddha said, you know, if you want to do this, it's possible. It's really fucking hard. That's not a direct quote from the Buddha. <laughs> but, you know, the reason he said, the reason I call this place against the stream, because that is a direct quote from the Buddha. He said, you have to go against your own human nature to get enlightened. You have to rebel. It's really hard. Like human, our survival instinct, our, uh, our craving, our aversion, our wanting to indulge in everything pleasant, wanting to avoid all of the unpleasant design. Even if you look at these five precepts of like, well, why do I sometimes kill or steal or lie or cheat or get loaded? And if you really look at all five of those behaviors, it comes down to like, oh, I was trying to avoid something unpleasant. I was trying to create something pleasant. I wasn't willing to sit in the discomfort of telling the truth, so I lied. I wasn't willing to sit in the discomfort of 
sobriety. <laughs> so I drank. <laughs> I thought that would be much more pleasant. I couldn't tolerate the ants in the kitchen. So I murdered them all. Because <laughs> they were making me uncomfortable. Fucking cockroaches. <laughs> and right, I mean, if you look at the five precepts there, uh, the renunciation that we're asked for is like, can you learn to be uncomfortable and tell the truth? Can you learn to be uncomfortable and stay sober and enjoy the, the joys uh, that life presents without uh, masking the pain and creating the false uh, elation of intoxication? So it's really quite um, serious, the task at hand, because we're not wired that way. None of us are born into bodies that are like really relaxed around pain and super tolerant of it. And none of us are bo born with minds that are like good at non-attachment. And so we're being asked, you know, not being asked, but we're being offered like, okay, here's this path. You want to end suffering in your life? Here's what to do. Check it out for yourself. See if it works. Meditate, practice mindfulness, develop this ability to see clearly and respond appropriately. Mindfulness is one piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole path. It's a big piece because it's connected with our actions and our speech and our livelihood and our understanding and our intentions. Mindfulness is so foundational, but it's not. One teacher said, you know, you can be really good at meditation. And there are people like this, and I know some of them, and some of them are famous meditation teachers. <laughs> who are really good at meditation, fucking killer meditators, but not very ethical, not very honest. But will sit still for hours like a ninja. <laughs> let, me, let me continue. I'll come back. Yeah. And so there was one teacher who said, and I used to attribute this quote to the Buddha, but then somebody was like, that wasn't the Buddha. It was... Someone else, it was Manindra, I think, who said something like, um, you can, you know, be a, a master meditator, but if you don't have the, if you're not, if you're not living the five precepts at a minimum, if you're not practicing renunciation, it's like being in a boat where you, you know, you have a boat and you have the oar and you're like paddling and you're like, okay, I'm kind of getting out into the lake or the river or whatever the image is. Um, but you don't realize at some point that you're not making any more progress because you're tied to the dock and you're out there just sort of like, and at the beginning you're making a little progress, right? Cause it's a long rope <laughs> and you're kind of going. And then at some point you don't realize like, fuck, I'm just keep meditating, but I'm not getting anywhere. Cause I keep lying and stealing and cheating and doing bong hits every morning. <laughs> and I'm not making, I'm not getting there. Um, And so that's an, I think it's, I like that image that you can only go so far with your meditation practice if you're not getting really serious about also your ethics. 
And then there's the other side, right? There's people who are so fucking ethical, but they don't have much wisdom because they don't meditate. There's people who are honest and sober and don't lie and cheat and steal, but they also are just self-centered, self-righteous people that don't have any wisdom of impermanence and they don't understand the nature of reality. They're just sort of like uptight, honest people and tell you the truth all the time, which is, you know, not a terrible thing, but it's not, doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. And so the Buddha's teaching the eightfold path uh, we break it down into wisdom, ethics, and the meditative discipline. Sila, samadhi, panya. Sila means ethics, and it's a central, central part of it. Samadhi means meditation, panya, wisdom. So focusing on the ethics tonight as a necessary part, not a, not a kind of, it's not optional. Um, it's like the precepts are optional. For you, like the way that we teach it in the West, we're real relaxed about it. Um, you know, like here's the five precepts if you care to indulge. But that's not really, it's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha was like, no, if you want to do this, this is what must be done. It's up to you if you want to do it or not. But, you know, if you're not going to do it, you're not going to get free. So if you want to get free, this is, you know, here's, here's, here's the offering. Here's the path to freedom. I want to talk about the precepts um, and encourage your own reflection and, um, you know, you get to, you get to choose. Uh, but I want to be clear that, you know, this was what, and I think I'm being clear, like the Buddha said, this is the minimum. The bare minimum is to not drink alcohol or use recreational drugs or recreational alcohol. and. 2,600 years ago, the dude didn't know much about alcoholism, I don't think. He didn't. Um, but he just saw like, hey, we're trying to be mindful, present, awake. And when you take a drink, and he's somebody who had drank. He grew up in a palace and, you know, talked about before he, you know, went off on his spiritual journey, being at these orgies and these parties. And, you know, he had, he had in his early life indulgence. And he saw like, this is just a dead end. Getting high doesn't create happiness. Getting high doesn't, it's so temporary. And it's something about the Buddha that I love, um, where he's just like, I want the real thing. I want true happiness. I want real freedom. He's like, I've got all the money and power. That's a dead end. And then he went and studied with spiritual teachers that were teaching him these concentration techniques that got him really fucking high and temporarily blissed out. And he said, also, that's a dead end. I'm not looking for a temporary escape. I want to live free from suffering without needing to be buzzed, without needing to be uh, concentrated into oblivion. <laughs> and is where mindfulness came in. And he's like, wow, here's something that I can do. But it's only possible to do it with a clear mind, free from recreational. So this is the precept. For whatever reason, for I think for many reasons, um, just before the Buddha died, 
they came to him and they said, okay, you have all of these precepts and the monks and nuns, especially the monks ended up with 227 uh, precepts, practices of renunciation, 227 things that you cannot do as a monk, right? So we're just saying five, don't do five things. If you become a monk, you have to add, you know, 222 to our five <laughs> things that you cannot do as a monk. And they live their life in that level of renunciation. The nuns got even more rules. I think 327. Three, do you remember? Three, 331. Two, uh, 227, right? For men? 227, 331? Yeah. The nuns, for some reason, got more rules. You know, patriarchy, give the women... <laughs> Give the women more renunciation than the men. Um, and when the Buddha was dying and they came to him and said, like, okay, you've made all of these training rules and precepts and, and you're, you're not, you're not going to be here anymore. Should we still follow all of them? And supposedly towards the end of the Buddha's life, he said something like, well, you can let go of the minor training rules, but keep all of the important ones. And then croaked and never said which ones were important and which ones weren't. So, of course, pretty quickly, people said, you know, that precept around drinking alcohol, that's not an important one. That's a minor one, right? Like, so it's okay to meditate and on ecstasy, it feels killer. <laughs> it's great, actually. I'm even better at meditating when I've done three shots of sake. Smoking some weed makes my meditation so good. And so really quickly, and schools of Buddhism, as Buddhism uh, went to the north and, and became, you know, mixed with Taoism and Confucianism in China and became Zen Chan Buddhism um, uh, as it went to Japan and, and mixed with the Shinto religion and their uh, kind of uh, samurai culture. Uh, pretty quickly, the fifth precept was optional and started to be, and in Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism is the newest form of Buddhism. Uh, only been around for like a thousand or twelve hundred years, and and uh, Theravadan Buddhism about twenty six hundred years, um, and uh, in Tibetan Buddhism it actually became a thing where like oh no not only is it okay to drink, alcohol is part of our rituals, some part of some of our um, spiritual Buddhist empowerment ceremonies we're going to drink alcohol, and so not only was it we're just going to break the rules. It's actually what rules like this is part of our religion, part of our Buddhist religion. At, it's like um, in Catholicism, when you drink the wine at mass, it's like it's part of forms of Christianity to drink alcohol. It's part of forms of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, to drink alcohol. And I've met more than one sober person that kind of came up against that wall of like, I'm studying Tibetan Buddhism and I went to the empowerment and I was supposed to drink, but I'm not supposed to drink. And so it can be quite confusing because the Buddhist teaching was, it's never appropriate to drink if you want to be free from suffering. It was really quite clear and over and over in the Buddha's early 
early teachings. So there was this new interpretation of uh, moderation and that sometimes it could be used in a sacred manual in a sacred um, uh, matter. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yes, that one. And then in America, the founders of almost every school um, of Buddhism were like, especially the Westerners were like hippies who were like found Buddhism through psychedelics and through, you know, like smoking weed. And, and so the fifth precept has been very optional in Western Buddhism. My teachers, my father, Stephen Levine and Ram Dass and Cornfield and Goldstein and Salzburg and, you know, the rest of the Jew boo <laughs> law firm of Jewish Buddhists, um, we're all stoners, right? We're all like psychedelic cowboys. And then they came and started teaching meditation retreats and, and we're like, you know, that fifth precept, optional. Moderation is okay. Psychedelics are okay. Wine is fine. Uh, weed is fine. And because they, you know, because that's how they were living. And so they created a whole tradition of people of Western Buddhists who aren't practicing the precepts. And then in Zen, it's fine to drink alcohol. And we have this history of alcoholic Zen masters, the, the big Zen uh, teacher in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s died of alcoholism. Uh, you have Chogyam Trungpa died of alcoholism, who's who, the founder of uh, Shambhala Buddhism. Um, you know, and there's just example after example of Buddhists who aren't practicing the Buddhist teaching and have reinterpreted it and kind of either used that thing of like, no, no, he said when he was dying that we could change this. Uh, we've decided that what he meant was it's okay to get high, which is like so convenient. <laughs> or even this interpretation of in moderation, right? We have five precepts. So wild to think about saying like, well, he meant like moderation in the fifth precept when it comes to drugs and alcohol, but he meant, you know, like abstinence, or what if we applied moderation to all the, the first four precepts? It's okay to have sexual misconduct in moderation. Once in a while, as long as you don't go too crazy, you can cheat occasionally. You can, you know, manipulate occasionally. Just don't, don't go overboard with your cheating or murdering. Murder in moderation, <laughs> you know, don't become a serial killer, but in the right circumstance, if you gotta kill, you gotta kill. If it's at a wedding and you wanna murder, have a, have a drink at the wedding. You, know, you wanna kill and sleep with somebody you shouldn't be sleeping with at the wedding, it's a wedding, what are you gonna do? So I know I'm talking some shit, but to, uh, to, you know, to make this point that like the teaching is abstinence. And we all get to choose. I will say that it's been very confusing for me being a recovering addict, alcoholic. 
I felt so supported by the fifth precept when I found out like not only mindfulness works, but also there's a whole spiritual tradition here of being sober. But then I had all of these teachers, my dad and all his friends who weren't sober and were saying like, yeah, we don't really practice that part of Buddhism or we've reinterpreted it. And so I've always, I've always been pretty relaxed about it. Try to be, I'm, I, might, I might sound super judgmental about it, but uh, I feel more relaxed, I think, than I sound. Um, that everybody has to find their own way. And then also looking at those teachers and the people that I'm naming and many others that I'm not naming, who've been meditating for decades and decades and decades and still getting high, they made a lot of progress. You know, that image of being tied to the dock. Um, they made a lot of, maybe, you know, like it's a long rope and, you know, their meditation practice stretched out the rope and they, you know, definitely ended a lot of suffering, did a lot of good, did a lot of service. Um, so it's not like if you take a drink, you're a bad person and your meditation is pointless. Yeah. It's more like it's just maybe not going to take you all the way. That the Buddha's teaching was like, if you really want to go all the way, then sobriety. Sexual misconduct. The Buddha's teaching, uh, you know, again, this is around karma. This is around the understanding that we all have of our craving for pleasure and how um, much suffering we can experience in our sexual relationships and in craving and rejection and um, you know, not being appropriate, not, you know, get, getting unwanted, you know, unsexual attention uh, or, or giving unwanted sexual attention or being betrayed, the, the pain of betrayal. One of the ways I was thinking about framing this also is that at another place, the Buddha said the, hap the, the highest form of human happiness is integrity, is blamelessness and integrity and uh, not doing anything that you feel guilty about. And so part of the, the frame of the precepts is that if you kill, you're going to probably not feel so, probably have some remorse some guilt, hopefully you will. Uh, if you cheat, you know, when it comes to sexual misconduct, if you engage in an inappropriate relationship, breaking your own commitment or engaging with someone else that's breaking their commitment, there's going to be some level, if you have uh, any kind of awareness and moral compass, and you're going to regret it. You're going to feel like, I'm not in integrity. I was dishonest. And so the Buddha is mostly, when he talks about sexual misconduct, he mostly talks about cheating, breaking commitments, dishonesty. Also, I think that there's a simple frame, and I've always talked about this, and it's, I feel like it's a little bit more challenging for me to talk about these days, as um, the Buddha is pretty liberal around sexuality, and on some level said basically, consensual adult relationships that aren't breaking any promises to anyone else, consensual. I find 
you know, I've gone through some experiences in my personal life, and I think culturally, it's much more challenging to talk about what is consent. And what, what actually is consensual. And uh, like I am aware that uh, the current, maybe it's more like college campus definition of consent uh, is that it's always on the man. And it's the man's, um, uh, you know, again, which again is a bit heteronormative, right? It's always on the, the you know, male, uh, to request permission for every step of the way when it comes to sexuality, to get a verbal consent. And, um, you know, so just reflecting on that and your relationships and your experience with consent and um, do you ask for permission? Do you wanna be asked for permission every step of the way when you're in an intimate uh, relationship? So I'm not so sure that I can just frame it as consensual because I feel like there's a lot of confusion around uh, this term consent. And I know that a lot of women that I've spoken to say like, please don't ask me if you can go from second base to third base. <laughs> like you're just gonna kill the vibe. <laughs> but then there's other women who are going to say like, absolutely, actually, if you do not request verbal permission, do not continue unless it's, I've given you clear, uh, you know, request and, and uh, communication. But you know, you know, so I, I feel a bit more, um, like it's more and more challenging to talk about. But you know, in general, what we're saying here is that two people that are both on the same page, being honest with each other, communicating about sexuality, uh, is what is considered appropriate and not misconduct. And that if there's anything that's clearly non-consensual, cheating, um, that's a break of this precept, is non-sexual non misconduct. When it comes to, uh, I'll finish and then we can have some discussion. When it comes to, stealing, uh, often the way that this is translated is to not take anything that's not freely offered to you. And I would say offered or earned, right? So, you know, if you've earned it and then it's, you have the right to your paycheck or your, you know, property or whatever it is. And, um, and if you haven't earned it or it hasn't been offered, then don't take it. And this again comes a little bit from that monastic uh, where the monks and nuns have all of those rules. And, you know, for instance, they're not even allowed to take food that's not put into their bowls. It's not totally offered. Like you can't even say to a Buddhist monk in the Theravadan tradition, um, help yourself. Like there's food right there. And I've had this experience with my teachers where I'm like, yeah, help, would you like, would you like some? And they're like, yeah, I would like some, but I can't grab it until you hand it to me. It actually has to be freely, physically offered. You can't just, you know, the verbal offering is not enough. It has to be physically. And in order to be really clean about, we will not take anything that's not clearly offered where it's really actually presented to us. 
so they can't go to the buffet. <laughs> or actually, the way, the, how, you know how they do it? If you want to take the monks or the nuns to the buffet, what you got to do is you can say like, okay, we're going to the buffet and uh, you know, me and someone else, we're going to touch the table and say everything on this table is freely offered to you. And then when you stop touching it, they can eat everything at the buffet. But then if I touch it again, they have to stop because I've like taken it back. <laughs> it's a fun game to play with the monks. <laughs> Where are some of the places in your life that you notice? Oh, I. I saw this when I got serious about the precepts. I was working in a hospital and I saw, oh, I used to steal from work because it was like work stuff. I was taking pens. I was taking, you know, I was like, well, this is my work stuff and I'm taking it. And I saw like, oh, this is not freely offered. This belongs to my job. This belongs to the hospital. I don't get to take the masks from work for my personal use at home. I don't get to take that's stealing. That's not freely offered. It, they, the, the hospital hasn't said like, hey, help yourself to as many pairs of scrubs as you want. Like, nope, I got two pairs of scrubs, but hmm, I've got five pairs at home. I've stolen all those other three, not freely offered. So, How about Starbucks or the coffee shop? I know you guys are don't go to Starbucks. You only shop locally. But the coffee shop when the sugars are out and you're like, ooh, I could, I could use some sugars in my car for an emergency or whatever it is, some extra cups, some extra napkins. What if I got a go to the bathroom. I need a whole bunch of napkins. And it's like, well, if you want to be strict about this, the napkins, the sugars, the stirrers, the are not freely offered for you to take as much as you want to do with whatever you want. They are offered for your purchase of that coffee to put one sugar or two or whatever you're going to put in that coffee that you're using at this time. And so we can start to look at our you know, how we start to help ourselves to stuff that's not really freely offered. Stealing stuff from work or from, you know, or from the buffet. I think in one of my books and against the stream, I said, it's like going to the buffet where then you line, you know, it's like, oh, I paid $20 for the buffet. But then you line your coat with plastic bags <laughs> and you're just like throwing the crab legs in there for later. And it's like, well, it was all you can eat while you were eating there not three meals to take home to go. Like there's a reason there's no to-go bags from the all-you-can-eats. And you know that, and that's why you're stealing an extra meal. <laughs> Flipping the ends off your neighbor's succulents to start them at home would be stealing. Which is a good example. And is also one of those things, like how often do we steal something it's so unnecessary to steal because if you go to your neighbor and say, do you mind if I take a couple clippings of your succulent? Most likely they're going to say, sure, take it. But instead of asking and having consent, we're just like, fuck it, I'm stealing it. I confess to a neighbor that I cut a branch off this very unusual succulent. I said, I'm really sorry I stole it. And he went, 
oh, oh, wait. And he ran into his garage and came back and brought me one that was already potted and rooted. Right, he right. Like, here. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. Confessed to stealing and he's giving me one. That's nice. <laughs> now I feel really guilty. <laughs> I one time I got into a thing where I thought I was getting a little too uptight about my honesty. And so I decided I was going to stick it to the man by like breaking like by like sneaking into like corporate things. And like, uh, there's like sneak into Disneyland, like fuck Disney. I'm not paying them. I'm sneaking in. I'm fucking my karma. I'm doing it. And snuck into Disneyland a couple of times. This is like in my twenties. And, uh, and then one time me and my friend were like, and it got a little slippery because then we got into like the th thrill of sneaking into places. <laughs> and then we were like, let's sneak into the Japanese tea garden in San Francisco, and we, which is like a pretty cool place. And it's like 50 cents. It's not like you're getting away with anything. It's like almost, and one day a week it's free. And so we like jumped the fence and I cut the shit out of myself, jumping this barbed wire fence to jump into the tea garden. And then that was the day of the week as we we're walking out, it was free. I stole something that was freely offered. And I think I still get the karma because my intention was to steal, even though I didn't really steal. Right. Because all karma is based on intention. And so like when you're trying to steal some shit that like you find out was free, you still stole it. And murder. I think it's important. I'll, I'll end here. I'm cu curious about um, your questions or thoughts. Um, There, it is important to make a distinction between uh, intentional and unintentional killing. It is impossible to live on this, on this planet, in this realm of existence that we're in without killing. And so, you know, we want, we want these precepts to be something that we can actually do. It's impossible to not kill. Um, if you drove your car here tonight, you'll probably kill some bugs on your way home. Even if you're walking in the dark or on your bicycle, you might kill some bugs on your way home. And it's not going to be intentional, but it's part of, you know, walking around or driving around or, um, and even if you're somebody who does a plant-based diet, uh, veganism, uh, still, in order to produce vegetables and fruits and uh, the plants that you live on, um, bugs, worms, insects, fruit flies, gnats, whatever, even in the organic, like even in the best farming practices, uh, bugs die in the production of fruit. Um, and so just understanding that it's impossible to survive without killing. And from a Buddhist perspective, there's not really a hierarchy of life forms. Cows aren't more important than insects, um, equally important. Humans, there is some level of a humanist uh, view that you know, there's uh, more karma in taking the life of a human being than of an animal, but killing is killing. And 
Uh, and part of this precept around refraining from intentionally taking life is uh, out of compassion, out of like, oh, I want to understand that even that small life form, those ants that fly, those mosquitoes also have a survival instinct just like me. Now we have human consciousness and we have a lot more fear and a lot more attachment and self-centeredness and all of that than probably most animals and especially small life forms. Um, they're probably not quite as conscious of like, please don't kill me, <laughs> you know? but they have a survival instinct that says, please don't kill me. I don't, I want to exist. And it's the same thing that we have. I want to exist. I don't want to be harmed. I don't want to be murdered. I don't want to be swatted just because I'm sucking your blood. I'm a mosquito. That's my job. Um, or I'm an ant. I'm, you know, it's not my fault that you left crumbs on the table. I'm a fucking ant. And so I'm just trying to get some food. And now you're going to murder me. Was it wasn't? That's true. Karmically. <laughs> karmically. That's an interesting perspective. I like that. So my take, at least partial take on the precepts. It looks like I got a bunch of questions online and I will start with you guys. Kaylin, go ahead, jump in. You can unmute yourself. Okay, thanks. Uh, I was wondering if you had more comments on eating meat. I guess you touched on it a little, but you know, buying meat at the grocery store, you're still sort of involved in the killing of it. Did you have more comments on that? I'm going to give you, could you hear the question about meat eating and the first precept? I'm going to give you the traditional Buddhist uh, answer, and then I'm also going to give you my um, opinion, which is not, they're not totally in line. The traditional Buddhist uh, answer is that the karma in murder is uh, taken by the person who does the murdering. So the butcher, the um, people that kill the animal that gets to the restaurant or supermarket are the ones that have the karma of the murder, not the people who consume it. Now, that's the traditional Buddhist answer. Buddhism was, isn't traditionally a vegetarian faith or practice. Um, but the Buddha did say, and, and there's also, there wasn't factory farming. There wasn't, um, wasn't the 2,600 years ago. One of the things the Buddha did say was like, it's okay to eat meat if it's offered to you. That's part of what's happening in this world. People eat meat. He said, but out of compassion for animals, uh, one of the rules that he made uh, for the nuns and monks was that if you go and you're begging and you're out and you're saying like, somebody please feed me lunch and they're feeding you some fried chicken, then just receive it. That's what they're eating. They're sharing some with you. Eat it. No karma in consuming it. He said, but if you show up and they're like just a minute and they go and murder a chicken for you to feed you you're going to have the karma of that and you should actually refuse it. You should actually say, I can't participate in the death of that animal to feed me. So it's a little subtlety. It's a little tricky and everyone has to find their own way with it. Technically Buddhist perspective, karma is in the killing, 
but then there's this other piece unless you know it's killed for you then you're karmically complicit in it now in our modern system of factory farming and uh you know um capitalist consumerism you have to decide do you feel like purchasing meat makes you complicit in the death of the animal and there maybe it's different right for the monks and nuns and i've known people who said i'm a buddhist vegetarian which means i will never uh purchase me part of my renunciation is i won't pay for it but if i show up to the barbecue or someone offers me something uh, and it's freely offered then i'll consume it like a monk would like a nun would but that i won't put my i won't uh, take the karma of participating in the killing my own view is that uh, when we purchase meat we are creating some karma that it's not a totally karma free activity and that if you choose to eat meat and i'm somebody who was vegan for many years well over a decade and and not vegetarian anymore i'm a meat eater i'm a these days and i think that i have some karma in that and it's karma that i choose and that i feel aware of um and i, I don't have it rationalized of like oh this is totally karma free but it's something that i choose to do um in tibet from what i understand because the culture became so uh buddhist and, and and like to the point where like pretty much everyone was concerned about their karma and they couldn't find butchers like nobody would but they weren't vegetarian and where tibet sits is it's a real meat eating culture because nothing grows up there and so they like survive on barley and yak yak is like a cow it's like a big hairy cow but at some point like none of the buddhists were like we're not going to fucking take the karma of being the butchers and so they found muslims and imported people of different faiths to be the butchers in their culture and they're like well let them get the karma because we can't get any buddhists to kill around here so find somebody who doesn't care about their karma on a minor scale i do this at home sometimes when the ants come in and i'm like i'm not fucking killing the ants and my kids are like we'll fucking kill the ants <laughs> <laughs> and probably i have a little bit of karma of like allowing the kids to exterminate the ants um who is next cat or lee cat jump in and then lee Okay, really quick. Hi, Noah. Hi, Sangha. Um, I just wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about, I know we're running out of time, but like your perspective or a Buddhist perspective of like what spiritual materialism is and how it's different from an internal refuge. Like those two phrases confuse me and what the difference is. And like, if I'm doing, like, I don't know if I'm being like spiritually materialistic by wanting to meditate because you know what I'm saying? So maybe you could like tell us your thoughts on that. You know, I love the question, Kat. And since you come all the time, uh, I think let's save it. Like maybe in next week or soon, I'll do a talk on spiritual materialism and what are my thoughts about it? Cause it actually um, warrants a deeper investigation than a two minute 
quick answer. Um, is that okay? okay? Thank you. If we, yeah, if we table yeah. it and then we talk about it maybe next week or the week after. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Um, before I give all the attention to the people on Zoom, is there any questions or comments here in the room? And we only have maybe time. Yeah, please. Um, could you rationalize lying? And I was speaking about this before, you know, lying like business lies, white lies. You know, it's so hard to do business without saying a little bit of a lie. I mean, even, even a freelance artist, you know, oh, I sell this direction out of money. Even this thing with masks now, right? You know, please wear a mask if you're not vaccinated. Vaccinated, you know. I, I can't even like lie anymore. So I don't get a lot of things done. Um. Well. The the answer is no. We don't, don't rationalize it ever. Practice rigorous honesty. And then have the humility to know you're probably not going to do it perfect. But don't rationalize it. Don't intentionally set out to be like, you know, I'm going to lie sometimes. Set the intention to be like, I'm going to really try to be fully rigorously honest. And then when you come up in those situations where you're like, fuck, I really want to exaggerate here. I really want to, uh, you know, omit, you know, the kind whatever it is, reflect on it, be with it, right? Use it as practice. But the intention is uh, really try to try to do these things, try to live with honesty and integrity. And even if it's inconvenient and, um, uh, Russ and I, he was for a long time, he's a, a lawyer, you know, and there's, we all love to talk so much shit about lawyers and how like dishonest and manipulative. And, and he was like, as a, as a Buddhist, like, what about like loving kindness litigation? And rather than like being unkind and dishonest and exaggerating everything that actually often when it comes to legal stuff, the truth is enough. And you could do it in a kind and honest way without uh, our hyperbole and the way that we tend to be like, I really, you know, as an artist, you can just actually be totally honest and be like, that's what I want. I want, how much? That's how much. How much do you want for that painting? That's how much. Without turning into the story of like, and I, you know, I'm in galleries all over Albania, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, of like, just that's how much I want for that. So I know, I get it. I think it's, it provides challenges, but the more we get on board with rigorous honesty and the more we remember, I'm not doing this for others as much as I'm doing it for my own liberation. And as I framed it earlier, I'm willing to be uncomfortable here and have that difficult conversation about whatever it is um, and be uncomfortable for my own liberation, because I care about my karma. And I'd rather be uncomfortable and make a little bit less money and be more free than, you know, you see the people who've made lots of money being really dishonest. And maybe from the outside, you have some jealousy. <laughs> Fuck, those guys made all that money lying, stealing and cheating. And I'm over here telling the truth, broke. 
from the Buddhist perspective, way better to be broke and happy than rich and karmically holding all of the suffering that we create through dishonesty. I think we got to leave it there since it's nine. Um, happy to hang for a few minutes after class and answer the other online questions and in-person questions, but I don't like to keep uh, people, uh, you know, it's like keeping you, uh, this would be a break on my uh, taking what's not freely offered if I go too long. It's like you guys agreed to be here till nine and then I just have you hostage. So I got to and it's close to being on time. A um, couple of announcements as we end. I have a three month course, three or four month course, um, depending on how you count the time, four sessions. It starts the first weekend in September. I think it's the um, third of September, the first Saturday. And it's on the teachings of uh, Ajahn Sumedho, Lumpur Sumedho, where we're going to listen to his Dharma talks, uh, one Dharma talk a day for the whole uh, three months and uh, have sessions uh, one Saturday a month. And then there's also one-on-ones where people will meet with me, where we can have a um, discussion about your practice and understanding of the Dharma. So there's some space left in that. It's an online, it's a fully online course. Um, so you can sign up and we'll be doing the sessions over Zoom and then the one-on-ones on Zoom. Um, no in-person for that course. The fall retreat october 10th through 17th we have a seven day uh, meditation retreat that's held in noble silence where i'll be teaching there's instructions twice a day a dharma talk every evening but the re- other than that you spend the week in silence doing your own practice doing your own developing wisdom and um, you know practicing the five precepts is so much easier on retreat because you don't speak so you don't lie <laughs> and uh, you're practicing celibacy and might be the only week in your whole life where you don't lie to anybody else. Um, so think about signing up for that. There's some space left. And also I need to do some fundraising. If there's anybody in the Sangha that has uh, the interest and willingness, we've had, um, I forget what the number is, but a lot, of, I think over 15 requests for scholarship, for help, people that want to attend the retreat that can't afford it. And um, I got one $5,000 donation, which will cover maybe um, seven people for because we're giving partial scholarships, but I need to raise like another five or $10,000 so that people can come. And that doesn't go to me, that goes to you giving back to the Sangha so people can attend the retreat. And we're just charging what it costs to put the retreat on. So um, if you have extra money, consider donating it on the Against the Stream website. There's a donate button that then generates a tax deductible um, receipt to you. So if you go on there and say, hey, I can give a couple thousand or a few hundred or whatever it is, um, then um, you'll get a donation receipt for that. And you can write it off on your taxes if that is important to you. Um, I think that's all for the announcements, as well as my Monday night class. There's a Wednesday night live class, live in Zoom, and then a Friday night class that's also on Zoom. So join the Sangha and those other classes. And um, 
think that's it for tonight. Class is done by donation. There's a link for donations in the chat there. And if you're here, you can offer cash into the bowl or there's the um, Venmo is on the table there. And Tara, do we have the ability to swipe? And probably if you wanna make a donation with a card, you can do that. I urge you to consider fully committing to the five precepts. To live a life that is free from intentionally killing or lying or stealing or sexual misconduct or intoxication. May each one of us do what we see fit to do. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Sorry for going a bit over tonight. Stealing seven minutes of your life. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.